Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 7, Episode 26. Last week, I covered the places of Mahanaim, Zapon, Bel Zapon, Akrabim, and Adamim, all found in Joshua chapters 13 through 15, a part in the text where the boundaries between the tribes are described in more detail. I've covered many of the places found here before. And another lot are so obscure that there's nothing to be found in the remainder of the Bible or the outside record. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm continuing working through the boundary places. And with that, let's get started. Joshua 15 wraps up with a very long list of all the cities, towns, and villages found within the limits of the land allotted to the tribe of Judah. Places I've covered before, like Gaza in chapter 6, episode 8, Jarmuth in chapter 7, episode 8, and Carmel, covered in chapter 7, episode 13. There are also places I may get to at some point in the future, like Jezreel, Labaith, and Shamir. Then there are the many places that this is the only mention in the text, and there is nothing in the outside record. So, in all likelihood, I'll never cover them. If I were to slow down and cover these at this point, I would likely be spending several months often repeating the phrase, and that's the little, or perhaps nothing, that's known about, fill in the blank. The very end of chapter 15 sets the stage for King David, who was still several hundred years off. In the last sentence, we're told, But the people of Judah could not drive out the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So the Jebusites live with the people of Judah in Jerusalem to this day. I covered these Jebusites in chapter 5, episode 7, released in November of 2019. And the phrase, to this day, seems to indicate that the sentence could have been written by Joshua towards the end of his life. And that's chapter 15. Chapter 16, especially when compared to 15, is really short. It outlines the territory allotted to Ephraim. In this passage, they're called the Josephites, one of only three places this name is found in the entirety of the Bible, and two of the three are in this chapter. The other is in Numbers 34, when it's used to refer to the combination of Manasseh and Ephraim. All of this rooted in Genesis, when the dying Jacob blesses Joseph's two sons by the same names, essentially ensuring that in 400 or so years, the descendants of Joseph get what amounts to a double inheritance. In the beginning of this chapter, there are people named the Archites mentioned. When I first saw this, and despite having never heard of them, I was hopeful it would give me something interesting to cover. I was disappointed. Like so many things in these chapters, this is the only place these people are mentioned, and there's absolutely nothing in the outside record. I told you that phrase was going to be repeated. Later in the Old Testament, there is a man, specifically Hushai the Archite, who was a spy and a friend of King David. But even with that, there's nothing more known about the greater Archite people except for the implication that they were around when the Israelites showed back up in Canaan after crossing the Jordan, and managed to last as least as long as through the reign of King David. 
I'll cover this Hushai when I get to the book of 1 Chronicles. But don't hold your breath. There really isn't much else known about him either. Other than that, and that the city was probably named Archai, there isn't much else known about it. In the next verse, a people known as the Japhetites are mentioned. And again, no joy, as this is the only time they're brought up in the entirety of the Bible. There's nothing in the outside record either. And I would skip them, too. Except the King James, in the same verse, does say they're on the coast. But all this represents is a different interpretation of the ancient Hebrew text. Were they a coastal group? Maybe, but certainly not definitely. A couple of verses later in the text, a place named Genoa is said to be on the border of the Ephraimites, which finally gives me something to cover. But this episode is going to run long, a little bit in excess of my self-imposed 30-minute limit. So I'm saving Genoa for next week. The last place mentioned in Joshua 16 is the Wadi Kana, also part of the boundary of the territory allotted to Ephraim. The only place this stream is mentioned in the Bible is in Joshua 16 and 17, in both cases delineating the boundary between the tribes of Ephraim and the eastern portion of the tribe of Manasseh. Like the city of Genoa, we do know a little more about it. It's in an intermittent stream that runs from the modern Israel village of Hawera on the west bank to the Yarkon River, which eventually empties into the Mediterranean Sea. As you would be correct in suspecting, a stream, even if intermittent, when found in the desert, has attracted people to its banks since before history was recorded. More on that in a minute. The Wadi Kana begins south of Mount Gerizim, near the village of Berin, placing it in the West Bank. In the early part of its course, the banks are lined by steep cliffs on either side, with the Wadi waters flowing in a general direction from the east-northeast to the west-southwest. In the case of the Wadi Kana, its human history goes back as least as far as a necropolis consisting of stone sculptures piled some seven layers high. But there's no word on when this was erected, as the usual dating techniques, such as carbon dating, have proven less than satisfactory. There's also a cave about 800 feet, 250 meters, from the Wadi's present course, up a hill that was used as a tomb. Both of these, the cave and the necropolis, are thought to be from the Stone Age, though that really doesn't narrow down the time significantly. The use of the cave, though, is believed to be from about the 6th millennium B.C. Deep inside the cave were tombs, at least 50 feet, 15 meters from the entrance. But that wasn't the most remarkable feature. The interior of the cave, after transversing the narrow entranceway, was found to be some 5,500 square feet, 500 square meters in size, rather large indeed. Excavations have yielded artifacts from as early as the 6th millennium to as late as the Early Bronze Age, meaning the 3rd millennium B.C., but still before Abraham was living in the region. One of the more interesting things about this cave is that it yielded far more than the usual finds. These included burial vaults, vases, churns, and a variety of plates and dishes, along with eight ring-shaped objects found in a burial vault. 
and these rings are of a particular interest. They were primarily cast from what's known as electrum. I'll get to what that is in a minute. Overall, the content of the rings was about 70% gold and 30% silver. They might indicate contact with Egypt, where contemporary drawings show similar rings made from what appears to be gold. Some of these same drawings are of Egyptians engaging in trade. If the gold-slash-silver rings found beside the Wadi Kana are indeed from Egypt, then they would be the oldest examples of such an artifact found in the greater Canaanite region. That such a valuable material, and in this form, was found in a burial vault, suggests that whoever was entombed there was of a high status. After all, you don't bury monetary items with a poor person. That person's family is going to need it more than they will. There's something else embedded in this theory. And that's that society and culture had developed a class system by this point, which would also be earlier than what's been found in the greater region. As for this electrum, it's a naturally occurring alloy of gold and silver, usually with trace amounts of copper, and occasionally various other metals like platinum. The ancient Greeks called it gold, or sometimes white gold, which was different from their refined gold. Unlike what you may suspect, it's not a consistent color. Instead, it ranges from pale to bright yellow, a color that's mostly dependent on the ratio of gold to silver. There are artificial versions known as green gold. Much of this electrum is found in western Canaan, all the way up to Anatolia. The samples found in Anatolia tend to have a natural gold content between about 70 and 90%. By comparison, the coinage of ancient Lydia, a kingdom that existed in western Anatolia between 1200 and 546 BC, had electrum gold content of around 50%. This has been proposed as ancient merchants and governments gaming the currency system. Imagine that, passing off money, whose value was based on the gold content, as being more valuable than it actually was. But there is a different reason for the lower gold content. It makes the coins harder, so better able to survive circulation. Backing up a bit, really just a few hundred years, the first metal coins ever made were made from electrum, and date back to the end of the 7th century, or beginning of the 6th century BC, and from the same general region. Due to the variation in the composition of electrum, it was difficult to establish the exact worth of each coin, especially since the value was based on the gold content, unlike our modern currency, which is based on trust in its inherent value. Back then, widespread trading was impeded by the issue, since the intrinsic value of each electrum coin could not be easily determined by the potential recipient. This problem was minimized in the 6th century BC when creases, coins of pure gold and silver, were minted in Sardis, also in Anatolia. But these coins didn't take off immediately, with electrum currency remaining commonplace until around 350 BC. The reason for this is relatively straightforward. Due to the gold content, one 14-gram stator was worth as much as 10 14-gram creases silver pieces, 
as long as you could ascertain its true value. By the 3rd millennium BC, in the Egyptian Old Kingdom, electrum was occasionally used as an exterior coating on the small pyramidians, meaning the stones topping off ancient Egyptian pyramids and obelisks. It was also used in the making of some of their drinking vessels. Even today, well, in the past hundred or so years, for several decades, the medals awarded as Nobel Prizes were made of gold-plated green gold, so artificial electrum. And that's it for electrum and gets me back to the Wadi Kana. Ancient Hebrew texts could alternatively be interpreted as the Brook of Kana, or the Gully of Kana, as it's found in various older texts, such as the Septuagint. Whichever characterization is used, it was the boundary between Manasseh and Ephraim. And, despite a simple interpretation, the changing course of Awadi and some of the other place markers that serve to delineate the boundaries, in many cases, these overlapped, which would easily lead to territorial disputes, especially when water and arable land is at stake, to the point that even through today, the Palestinians and Israelis are in constant battle over the water rights for whatever flows through the sometimes dry stream bed. And that's the Wadi Kana, and the last place I'll cover in Joshua 16. Which gets me to chapter 17, the boundaries of the tribe of Manasseh, at least the western half. The first place worth covering in 17 is a city, or maybe a region, known as Beth Sheen, which is actually mentioned twice in the chapter. The first is rather normal, as a city within the boundaries of the allotment, but the second is different. It's embedded in a passage where the tribe was unhappy with their allotment and protested to Joshua. They told the leader, Why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance, since we are a numerous people whom all along the Lord has blessed? Joshua replied, If you are a numerous people, go up to the forest and clear their ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim, since the whole country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. The tribe responded, the hill country is not enough for us, yet all the Canaanites who live in the plain have chariots of iron, both those in Beth Sheen and its villages and those in the valley of Jezreel. Joshua apparently wasn't in a listening mood and told them to get back to work clearing out the trees in the hill country, and while they were at it, to drive out the Canaanites who were living there. Later, in Judges 1, we're told they didn't do as they were told, and the Canaanites remained in Beth Sheen, among other places. 1 Kings 4 gives us more insight. Apparently, sometime between Judges and Solomon, the Canaanites were driven from the city, or at least came under the rule of the Israelites, as King Solomon had a governor named Bana, who ruled over several places, including Beth Sheen, which was said to be beside Zarathan and below Jezreel. The last place in the text the city is mentioned is in 1 Chronicles 7, where we're told it was then a city under the control of the tribe of Ephraim. How it went from western Manasseh to Ephraim is never explicitly explained. Backing up a bit, sometime around 1000 BC, King Saul and three of his sons were killed while battling the Philistines at the nearby Mount Gilboa, 
in 1004 BC. The Philistines then hung the body of King Saul on the walls of Bethshean. Later, I'll cover the history of the city in the outside record. For now, just know that there has been no uncovered evidence of Philistine occupation, but they could have been merely passing by on their way home from the victory. And that's the biblical history, which gets me to the outside record. In this outside record, Beth Sheen is frequently rendered as Beth Shan. Like so many places I've covered, its location at the junction of the Jordan Valley and Jezreel Valley has led to its continued prosperity. What this means is that whoever controls the city has access to a region that stretches from the Jordan to the coast, from Jerusalem to Jericho to the Sea of Galilee, a near-perfect position, at least for the region. It's on a tell, sometimes called Castle Hill, built by the most likely suspects, the Crusaders, but I'm well ahead of myself. Back in the prehistory period, the first occupants date to the mid to late Stone Age, though these people were likely nomadic and did not build permanent residences. That wouldn't happen until the early Bronze Age, likely sometime between about 3200 and 3000 BC. Though, to be accurate, there are a few hundred years in this period from which no artifacts have been uncovered. One of the more interesting finds is a large cemetery on the northern side of the Tell, which is rather normal. What makes it unusual is that it was in use from the Bronze Age until when the Byzantines controlled the region. So, from about 2000 BC to the 7th century AD, almost 3,000 years, a period that saw Abraham, Moses, David, Christ, and Paul, nearly the entire timeline for both Testaments. To put that in perspective, that is a longer date range than from when Christ was entombed until today. It's hard for me to imagine anything used for the same purposes for that length of time. Back in the history, after Abraham, and while the Israelites were in Egypt, the city of Betshin was captured by the Egyptians in the 15th century BC when Thutmose III was Pharaoh. This was evidenced by an inscription at the Egyptian temple of Karnak. While it was under Egyptian control, the town became the administrative center for the region. Up until that point, and despite its strategic location, the town had been rather small, but as a government center, it grew immensely. The Egyptians also had a cultural influence over the city, leaving their mark in pottery and other expected artifacts. Also dating to the period is a large Canaanite temple, almost 130 feet, 39 meters in length. While some archaeologists have dated it to the period, others think it may have been built later, but still while the Egyptians were in control. Inside the temple, a stele was uncovered. On it were Egyptian hieroglyphs that recorded the dedication of the temple to the Egyptian deity Mikol. Later, archaeologists would figure out that the temple was built atop an older one. Near the temple, another stele was found. This one depicts two lions. Though it's so weathered, it could also be a lion and a dog. I see two lions. Well, really one lion and a lioness. 
Overall, the Egyptians would control the city for some 300 years, with most of the population in the period being either government officials or the military. Towards the end of the period, probably during or just after the pharaohship of Ramses II, who ruled in the 13th century BC, the town was rebuilt following a more central layout. Also from the period are a couple more stela and a monument to the pharaoh. One of these tablets seems, at least to some researchers, to suggest there was a small Hebrew population. The dating of this is a bit problematic, as it would have been before the Exodus when the Israelites were in Egypt. Though there is something else that needs to be pointed out. The use of the word Hebrew, especially in this period, doesn't necessarily mean Israelites. After all, the Israelites were descended from Jacob, and Jacob had a brother, Esau, among many other relatives who to some, especially in this period, were also considered Hebrew. Not long after this, and this aids in the dating, the Sea Peoples invaded, sending the Egyptians back to their homeland. Sometime around 1150 BC, so after the Israelites were back, the city burned. Not long after this, the Canaanite city was rebuilt. As I mentioned earlier, during the reign of Solomon, Beth Sheen was under Israelite control sometime just after 1000 BC. The Assyrian conquest of the northern kingdom of Israel in 732 BC led to the city being burned again. From that point, and for the next few hundred years, Beth Sheen was sparsely populated. Then, along came the Greeks, led by Alexander. They would change the name of the city to Scythopolis, a name that would appear in the books of Judah and 2 Maccabees. In one of these passages, we're told the city was 75 miles, 120 kilometers from Jerusalem. When you get information like that in the text, it certainly makes it easier to narrow down a historic location. The Greek name may have been in reference to the Scythian mercenaries who settled there as veterans after the Greek conquering campaigns. Other than that, not much was recorded about the city in the period, except for a large Greek temple being built there in the 3rd century BC. Scythopolis, Bethsheen, your choice, was captured by the Romans in 63 BC. At this time, the center of the city was moved from the top of the tell to its slopes. I could find no explanation for this move. It would become a leading center of the Decapolis, a concept I'll get to at some point in the future. Once again, the city thrived. This is seen in the extensive urban planning and structures that included the best-preserved Roman theater in ancient Samaria, a hippodrome, and a cardo, which was the main street, and it usually ran north to south. Much of this stone construction material was sourced from Mount Gilboa, located about four miles, seven kilometers away, the same place where King Saul would die nearly 1,000 years earlier. During the Jewish-Roman War in 66 AD, the town is thought to have remained loyal to the Romans. There are many tombs from the period, including one inscribed as containing Antiochus, the son of Phalion. This certainly made him Greek, 
and he may have also been the cousin of Herod the Great. The Romans would give way to the Byzantines in 330 AD, when this city was primarily Christian, as seen by the large number of churches, though Jews and Samaritans remained in the town. An earthquake hit in 363, when many of the buildings were damaged. The Byzantines fell to the Muslims in 634, with the city escaping almost unscathed. Immediately after that period, Christians continued to live in the city next door to the newly arrived Muslims, though by about the 8th century, so just over 100 years later, nearly all of the Christians had left. With the departing population, Bethsheen was no longer the thriving place it had been before. The fortunes had decreased so much that many marble columns were removed and made into lime. Another earthquake hit in 749, destroying most of the remaining buildings. After this, the city center was moved to another hill. The Crusaders arrived in 1099, making the city part of their kingdom of Jerusalem. A small Crusader fortress bounded by a moat was built in the area southeast of the Roman theater. This fort was destroyed by the Muslims in 1183. The Muslims led to the Ottomans, and the Ottomans, after 400 years, led to the British, who made it part of their mandate. Throughout this period, the city, and the region around it, was known for its agricultural production, specifically olives, grapes, figs, almonds, apricots, and apples, all due to the climate and water supply. Come to think of it, most of these crops were likely plentiful throughout the history of the town. The 1947 UN Partition Plan put the city, along with most of the region, in the proposed Jewish state that would later become Israel, where it has remained ever since. And that's Beth Sheen, and a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week, when I'll continue pressing through the book of Joshua, beginning with the place I skipped earlier, the city of Genoa. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. Thank you.